Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Continuing our effort to chat with research scientists focused on pheasants and quail and upland habitat, as we've had on Dwayne Elmore, Leslie Elmore, Mark McConnell, James Martin um, over the course of the last year. Uh, we're going back to school again. This time we're going to Iowa State University to talk with Dr. Adam Jenke for a discussion about all three pheasants, quail, and habitat, not necessarily in that order. Uh, but Adam is the assistant professor and extension wildlife specialist. We'll ask him what that means at Iowa State University. He's a biologist with a PhD from South Dakota State, and he co-hosts his very own podcast called Habitat University. His specialty is focused on wild birds on working lands, or as he translates, I study birds where they live on farms and conduct education to champion those places. I can't believe we haven't had a guy on like this, 150 episodes. He's like tailor-made for our audience. So joining me uh, for today's conversation with uh, Dr. Janke is podcast regular contributor Jim Inglis, our Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Director of Government Affairs. And uh, that's because I know that this conversation and Dr. Janke's um, uh, science background is going to intersect with our effort in the farm bill throughout this conversation. So without further ado, um, let me welcome Jim and Adam to the, uh, the podcast today. Thanks for joining us, fellas. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to join you. So... Jim, you've been on a number of podcasts um, at, at this point, but just give a, give our listeners who may be popping in for this particular one just a two-minute byline of who you are so that gives a foundation for when we dive in with Adam. All right. Well, yeah, good to see you both here. Um, so again, Jim Inglis, uh, Director of Governmental Affairs. I've been with the organization for 20 years. Um, started out as the regional biologist in Ohio, did that for a few years, uh, was part of the team that helped launch Quail Forever in the Southeast. And uh, I had some experience down there in Mississippi State where I did my graduate work. So uh, helped along with that. I then uh, transitioned into uh, the organization's first Farm Bill Biologist Coordinator. So helped uh, with that program really across the country. And then for the last 10 years now, I've been working on uh, the, the policy side of things and especially on the Farm Bill Conservation Program. So, yeah, it's, I don't know. I think this is my fourth or fifth time. I haven't, I mean, I couldn't believe when you said there's 150. I think I've been on four or five of them. So. <laughs> yeah, they, they add up uh, quickly. Um, we've been doing it, I don't know, probably in year three of the podcast. Um, um, and Adam, you know, as, as I research, you know, the, your background real quickly, if you do a Google search of Adam Janke, Habitat University podcast pops up. So, so you're, um, you're a biologist by day, a professor by afternoon and a podcaster by evening. 
Yeah, it's it's quite a ride these uh, extension jobs, and I and I know we're probably going to talk more about what extension means, but we end up doing um, we do a lot of education and a lot of biology, but we also do graphic design and podcast editing <laughs> and video editing and I mean, so I close captioning on videos. I mean, the things I've had to learn how to do in this job really surprises me. And uh, audio editing, I can't say that I'm particularly good at it. Um, but, uh, audio editing has been one of them, uh, that I've had to learn, uh, with that Habitat University podcast, but it's been fun. And, and that's what I actually love about this job is the variety. Well, that was, you know, my question as you're teaching students at Iowa State University, you know, probably once upon a time, they got a heavy diet of biology, some chemistry, some mathematics, but in 2022, you mentioned graphic design, audio engineering. How relevant is that to, to your instruction for creating a well-rounded wildlife scientist in 2022 and beyond? Well, um, what, the way I think I'd answer that, we still do a pretty heavy dose of mammalogy, biology, chemistry, calculus, statistics, like mm -hmm. the things. That, and and so what I like to remind students, and I work a lot with graduate students especially, is that what they're at the university to do is to learn how to learn. They're, we're not necessarily, we're, and learn how to think. We're not telling them what to think, or we're not going to teach them every skill that they need. What we're trying to do is build skills among uh, students that make them able to learn and adapt and uh, find answers to questions and, and those sorts of things. And so I would actually say my training, um, I did not learn how to edit podcasts. Uh, of course, most of my training predates podcasts too, but uh, I didn't learn how to edit podcasts or videos or anything like that. But I learned the basics of communication. I learned the, the um, elements of scientific thinking and critical analysis and and finding trustworthy sources and vetting sources and looking for um you know uh convergence and opinions and insights you know across mm -hmm. topics and those are the transferable skills that i still use uh, mm -hmm. today so so we're still teaching them ecology biology and all that stuff because that's that's the foundation and then uh they're gonna have a rude awakening when they have to go do grant administration and uh, accessible ADA compliance <laughs> on PDF documents. They'll learn all that later, I think. <laughs> and, and Jim's laughing, uh, agreeing with you. Well, and, and I know that I've got three graphic designers on my team kind of saying, thank goodness they're not teaching graphic design to biology students at Iowa State because they yeah. <laughs> stay in your lane, fellas. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> But there is some value in having an understanding of kind of the key uh, components. Like you mentioned, key components of communi clear communication makes you a better biologist or better scientist. Yeah. And we definitely talk about that. And in like, for example, in graduate school, that's really what graduate school is all about. I mean, mm. we end up equipping, you know, tasking graduate students with certain projects and they learn things. But really what we're trying to help them learn is yeah how to read how to write how to give oral presentations how to mm. listen to disparate opinions and mm. and um you know kind of integrate those into uh, wildlife management challenges and 
Um, I, I think if university educators are, if we're good at our jobs, uh, people are going to go out and have a steep learning curve when they start at a state wildlife resource agency or nonprofit or something like that. But they're going to have the foundations. They're going to have that, like I said, ability ability to listen and learn, uh, critically analyze, and and then uh, communicate that out. So I'm, I'm kind of, I've kind of thrown my outline right out of the window with certain things you say I'm just leaping into. You you talked about how to listen to disparate opinions and think about that. And one of the one of your episodes that I listened to this morning from Habitat University. And I don't know if you know this about me, but my background before Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever was in baseball. Okay. And one of the so you know instantly now yeah. where I'm going. And one one of your podcast episodes was how to apply Moneyball, the the Billy Bean book theory movie with Brad Pitt mm-hmm. towards um, towards habitat conservation, wildlife management. Um, so because it, 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 when you talked about listening to, you know, differentiating opinions and applying that to your worldview, that's exactly what you did with that episode about Moneyball. So for our listeners that are like, what the heck? Yeah. Give the snapshot of your Moneyball hypothesis or abstract for your theory and how it applies to to habitat. Yeah, yeah. So the the book uh, in the movie is about just like real quick synopsis of that is essentially you know um, this this baseball team was you know sort of underperforming. I you could you could chime in too. It's been a while since I read the book, but uh, you know, this baseball team was kind of underperforming. And then this analyst came in and basically said in, in strategizing draft picks, they weren't focusing on the right metrics. And mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly what. So it just, uh, it's the Oakland A's, yeah. which is a smaller market team without a lot of big budget. And they were trying to compete with the Yankees dollars wise with, yeah. You know, signing these free agents or picking these draft picks based on home run hitters or strikeout pitchers or stolen bases. And they reimagined it without looking at the metrics of home runs and stolen bases, but rather at what's going to win the game. And all of a sudden, the Oakland A's started being perennial playoff contenders with the third lowest budget for players. And then, so there's the baseball background. Perfect. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Bail me out on the sports analogy. So then, (laughs) so then the way we translate that into our world is um, finding the right things to measure as it relates to quality wildlife habitat. And a lot of times our temptation in evaluating wildlife habitat is to look at basically how many of any given organism are there at a certain Mm -hmm. time. And we kind of in the discipline, will say that um, voting by numbers, you know, we let the animals vote for the best habitat by their numbers. Um, And what we find and what we're trained on in our discipline and what a lot of our research is, it often focuses on is that those numbers aren't necessarily the best measure of the quality or the score of any given um, piece of, of habitat. And there's a couple of reasons why. One, those numbers could be misleading. We could be going to a place and observing animals um, in not always, uh, not always counting for, for example, the right number of animals. There may be um, 
more conspicuous in certain habitat types. Mm -hmm. An example I used in that episode is when I was going to my deer stand one day and this guy told me that it was a good thing that the corn had just been harvested because the deer would be out there. And I was like scratching my head because I was like, well, 95% of the grain just went to the elevator. Like, why would the, de- why would the deer be more abundant now? Mm-hmm. You know, but th- the thing is, is he, he's used to seeing deer in a harvested cornfield because he can't see them in a standing cornfield. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we, we overvalue our observations because we think that we can observe a process that we really can't. And that's a huge focus of wildlife research is observing things that are hard to observe. And then the other way that uh, our sort of anecdotal or numerical observations may be misleading is that even if there's a lot, say, of one organism in a given area, they may not be doing well there. And doing well would mean like Mm. surviving. Mm -hmm. Um, They may be getting picked off by predators or they may not be finding forage there. So they may be starving or they may have like impaired what we call demographic performance, like reproduction. So uh, there may be a lot of hens in a given patch of cover, but they may not be pulling off young, may not be recruiting young into the population. And so what wildlife ecologists are, what we're almost always doing is trying to overcome those challenges. Mm. We're trying to, with the money ball example, focus not on home runs, but on the right metrics mm-hmm. of, for example, habitat quality. Uh, so we try to count things we can't see. We spend mm-hmm. a lot of time and a lot of fancy statistical methods uh, doing that. And then we also try to measure things that tell us something more in depth about a um, organism that we're studying's performance in a given mm-hmm. site, like survival or reproduction. And two examples for the bird world that immediately come to mind for me is like when people see in winter pheasants out picking grain, um, waste grain on the edges of fields is like, oh, they're they're finding food. They're doing OK yeah. because they're using their eyes to to tell them that. But the reality is, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but the reality is that's actually a bad sign. It, yeah. it, it illustrates that these these birds are stressed. And it's pushing them out of good cover to find something to eat and making them vulnerable to predators, particularly avian predators and and more robust winter conditions because it's they've been forced out of the good cover. That accurate assessment of using your eyes and they're telling you the wrong thing. That's exactly right. And it's. Uh, I have the same experience. I'll go to winter meetings oftentimes in agriculture education that I do. And I'll go to winter meetings and people say, I saw pheasants the whole way here. They must be doing great. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what we want. I mean, sure. It's great to see pheasants. I mean, mm-hmm. like I'm not denying that, but um, yeah, if they're out in the middle of the field, it's colder out there. Um, if you can see them, all the predators can see them, mm-hmm. uh, and they're, they don't want to be that far away from cover. They don't want to be that far away from a safe spot, a safe, warm spot. Uh, and they're out there because they can't find food anywhere else. And so, yeah, and, you can't always trust what meets your eye. Well, and food is often the variable that is the curveball and proper scientific analysis, isn't it? Cause you like, we have all hunted in the fall and found or or winter and found birds in the food plots, but that isn't any means uh, indicator of quality 
recipe of habitat for birds to survive a winter. It's just where they're they're finding food, but it's not going to necessarily mean that's where they should be right then. Right. And there's another thing, actually, Bob, that you bringing up food plots reminds me of that we, I can't remember if we talked about in that episode, but I talk about it pretty often. And that is um, another challenge in wildlife research and then people's sort of anecdotes about wildlife is that we can sort of, um, there can be like self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm. And the food plot is a really good example of that. A lot of people are like, oh, birds need food plots. And it's like, well, why do you say that? It's like, well, because that's where I shoot them in the fall. And it's like, well, do you hunt anywhere else like other than the food plots? Because I know even I do this and Mm. I, I have an old lab. So I like, I use her old hips as a justification for this, but I park in the public area and walk right to the food plot, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's this analogy in scientific inquiry about um, a drunk man searching for his keys. And uh, uh, a guy is in a parking lot at night, a dark parking lot at night, and he's searching for his keys underneath this one street light that's in the middle of the, of the parking lot. And the cop pulls up and he says, what are you, what are you looking for? and he says, I'm looking for my keys. And, and the cop says, well, where did, did you drop them around here? And he was like, no, I don't think so. And he says, well, why are you looking here? And he said, because here's, this is where the light is. Mm-hmm. And so in scientific re- inquiry, we have this challenge of like, this is where the light is mm-hmm. um, in a couple of ways. One, we may only be searching for animals in certain places where we have like biases that make us Mm -hmm. inclined to go search for them there. Um, And the other way is we may not be able to measure things very well. Like for example, um, it's relatively easy to find pheasant nests because they are fixed in the exact same spot for like a 28 day incubation period and a dozen or so days leading up to that of nest construction and, and clutch formation. Uh, and so it's relatively easy to go out and find those nests. It's much harder to understand what happens to those chicks that came out of that nest when they got on two feet, 24 hours after they were hatched and went and explored the landscape. And so the light analogy here is it's relatively easy to search and find pheasant nests. So we know a lot about where pheasants place their nests, but it's really hard to follow a pheasant brood around after Mm -hmm. it leaves the nest and understand what factors favor, for example, the recruitment of those birds into the population. So that's the dark part of the parking lot. It's really hard to keep <laughs> up with a, with with little baby pheasants after they hatch and leave the nest 24 hours later. And the light in the parking lot is like, yeah, we can send undergraduates out there to stumble around with hockey sticks <laughs> and find pheasants, you know? And so that's, that's something that's, again, those are the types of things that wildlife researchers are always like thinking about where, mm-hmm. where are these biases? And we talk about in our, in our writing and education, uh, how they could constrain what we know about a system. That, I love the analogy. Uh, <laughs> did you drop your keys here? No, it's the only place that's no. lit. <laughs> So we're going to continue these sorts of conversations about the research that your students um, and research you've done. Um, But I do want to backtrack a moment and let you tell our audience a little bit more about you, your background, 
you know, I mentioned you went to SDSU. Like, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you hunted. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I, I was looking at your Habitat University page and jumped right in at the Moneyball question <laughs> when I had an opportunity. But I'll let you talk. Uh, tell us your background here. Okay, great. Yeah. So, um, I always say I've lived on every corner of the Corn Belt, and then I just like now I just work right in the middle of it. Uh, I grew up in Indiana. Um, I did, and I went to Purdue university. That's where I did my undergraduate degree in wildlife. And, um, yeah, I grew up hunting in Northwestern Indiana, mostly ducks, um, to a lesser extent deer. There weren't really any wild pheasants left by the time I started hunting in Northwestern Indiana, but my dad in his younger days tells stories of hunting a lot of wild pheasants up there. Um, and we would occasionally do game farm stuff with my grandpa and other things, but, um, and then uh, Purdue, and then I and I worked while I was at Purdue in summer jobs. I worked in Wisconsin and North Dakota as well. And um, I'm establishing my list of Midwestern states here, yeah. so stick with me. So then from there, I went uh, east to where I first met Jim, and that was at, when I was at Ohio State University mm -hmm. studying Northern Bobwhites for my master's degree that I got there. Uh, and then went from Ohio, the eastern edge of the Corn Belt, across to South Dakota, the western edge of the Corn Belt. And that's where I did my PhD, as you mentioned, uh, studying ducks and wetlands uh, in eastern South Dakota during their spring migration. And then from there, I went to Iowa to start this job. So um, that's how it is that I say I've been on to every side of the Corn Belt. I always say to people at Iowa, they're like, are you from Iowa? And I always ask, like, well, where are you from? If they're, like, not from the United States or if they're, like, from the coast, then I'm like, yeah, basically. Like, <laughs> I grew up in northern Indiana. I might as well be from Iowa. It's flat, corn, and pigs, just like it is here in Iowa. But to people in the Midwest that have a little finer grain understanding of these the culture and uh, landscapes, then, then uh, I would say, no, I'm from, you know, northwestern Indiana, but not mm. Chicago. So, yeah. And you have a, and a, you said you have a yellow lab. I have a black lab. Black lab. Um, okay. I probably said geriatric might have been the word you heard <laughs> me describe her with. Uh, so that's the same lab that I've actually had in all those places that I just described. I got mm. her in Indiana in 2009, and so um, she is she's 13 years old, and um, mm. we we did hunt some food plots this year. Uh, and uh, we didn't hunt much because her hips are pretty old. We stuck to the trails, but we did end up getting a few birds on public land, nice. uh, which is a, quite a treat in her 13th season. Right on. Yeah, that's a great run. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've teased it a couple times, the extension portion of your, your job title. I, you know, well, people know what a professor does, but an extension, what what is it? Extension specialist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a bit ambiguous for the general population. What's yeah. that mean? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm a professor just like other professors in our department. And, and what I always just say is that instead of teaching in classrooms, I teach in communities. Hmm. That's kind of the simplest way of talking about it. And that's what I actually tell undergraduate students here as well. And um, extension is a mission area that's unique to the types of universities that we have in the United States called land grant universities. Uh, that were founded to help people um, address 
really applied challenges related to agriculture, home economics, uh, mechanics, like engineering and the like. And so all those schools I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. Purdue, Ohio State, South Dakota State, Iowa State, those are all land grant universities. Uh, And then, uh, you know, every other state has at least one and many states have two uh, at land grant universities. And these are um, universities that have three mission areas, teaching in the classroom. That's our most familiar uh, missionary and of course a critical one research, which most large universities have these research, uh, expectations. Uh, and then, but we have this third mandate, which is extension in the founding, uh, principle of extension was to quote, take the innovations in the laboratories out to the people where they can apply them. Hmm. And that's, I think that's from a like 1914 or 1930s or something document, like sort of central to the founding of the concept of modern extension programs. And I like it. It's like, oh yeah, that's what we do. We take the innovations from the laboratories, the things that university researchers are working on, and we try to take them out into communities where people can apply that knowledge for their own well-being or the well-being of the community, which is commonly the case with natural resources extension that I'm involved with. Um, so it's something I'm real passionate about. It's, um, I think it's this, one of the most democratic models of higher education you could imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, we do the really important things of, you know, having public education available to all citizens of the state, like all that stuff is really important from the classroom side. And we do that, which is great, but other schools do that. We take it one step further and we say, no, we're going to create lifelong learners and we're going to teach people from 4-H in, uh, you know, grade school all the way up to the grave, senior citizens and uh, well-being, land transfer, uh, land stewardship, forestry, invasive species, climate change, soil conservation. I mean, everything. Mm. Um, we're literally training people sort of cradle to grave uh, with with these resources from the university. So it's a really neat system uh, of education that I said, like I said, is available or available in every state and territory. So <clears throat> what's that look like? You mentioned 4-H. Is that, is that you going out and conducting like landowner forums to talk about what you've learned? Is it you writing content that goes into publications in the agriculture community what what's that look like to the end user yep all the above um the sort of gold standard of extension is like these coordinated programs and so for example a coordinated program that i'm really proud of uh and a part of here in iowa is called the master conservationist program and so this is a intensive seven-week course that we teach in counties across the state where we have an extension office in every county across the Mm -hmm. state. Um, And we invite adult learners in to learn about um, the details of conservation and land stewardship in Iowa. And so we uh, take, we have online lessons that are delivered by university uh, professors and other extension educators like me. Uh, And then we have in-person sessions for these master conservationist program course participants where they meet uh, local natural resource professionals, in fact, including many pheasants forever biologists like Farmville wildlife biologists and others uh, that do um, 
conservation work locally. And so we get, we bring the resources of the university, which are these sort of like broad technical concepts. So we deliver those in a, a lessons online and we develop this curriculum. And then we partner with local natural resource professionals like Pheasants Forever biologists, DNR biologists, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NRCS and others, uh, and teach these people about who is doing conservation in their community or how they can do conservation mm. on their farm or in their own backyard. Um, and so it's, it's like a college class for people in the, uh, general population. And it's, it's good for society because in that case, then they go out and they make the water cleaner or right. they steward wildlife, uh, resources on their land or, um, in the, in their communities. And so, um, yeah, so that's sort of the gold standard. We also do, we also become sort of, just the wildlife biologist like we we answer questions on all sorts of different topics sure um yeah it's every day every day is quite unique and challenging so the catalyst for this conversation was <clears throat> jim shared an article with me that from another iowa entity successful farming and it was reimagine the article was about reimagining profit and loss areas on the farm and as you talk about kind of your role as an extension specialist, my assumption is maybe that article started as a result of kind of that third leg of the stool is you were, you know, you take, you took your learnings from research at the university and were, sh were sharing this broadly with the agricultural community in Iowa and successful farming said, that's something our readers should know about. Is that an accurate hypothesis as A to B to C here? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly how that happened. And then the one additional layer there is um, there's basically one of us, one specialist for a bunch of different disciplines. Hmm. And so we're very collaborative by nature. And so like that project that was mentioned in Successful Farming, that's a collaboration that I have with uh, Dr. Mark Licht here and some others at Iowa State. And Mark is an agronomist. And there's not a lot of scenarios where wildlife ecologists and agronomists are working together at a university. We're mm. in different departments, you know, multiple buildings separate us, you know, we're just like we're in our own silos. But because of our extension affiliation, we are working together on, on education. And there's this mutually beneficial opportunity. In this case, Mark, the agronomist, wants to help people um, make their fields more profitable. Right. And one way to make your field more profitable is to not farm places where you're losing money. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the agronomist is really excited about that approach. And then as the wildlife ecologist, I see that as a real opportunity to convert those places where we're not making money, for example, on row crop farms into diverse native perennial vegetation that we know is really good for pheasants and quail mm -hmm. and other species of conservation need that I'm tasked with finding opportunity areas for uh, their conservation in working landscapes. So it's a neat, mm -hmm. yeah, that is a sort of a neat organic collaboration that comes up because of the nature of extension as well, which is pretty cool. And, th and that's also a great intersection for Jim and how our organization gets involved because you know, as, as I've said in all of these conversations with, um, you know, whether it was James Martin or Mark McConnell, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we don't spend our members' dollars on research, right? We, we don't fund research, but we collaborate with folks like you um, at, at Iowa State University, at the 
Coyle University, is it Mississippi State or University of Georgia? And then when you learn things like you like you shared with successful farming about for you know the marketing guy farm the best conserve the rest yep. uh, a person like jim who's a biologist but works in washington dc grab the baton and when you read that article jim what that mean to you well it means the opportunity to put you know more habitat on the ground uh, but I'd like to say that for the last half an hour, I felt like I just went back to school because we've been talking about marketing and graphic design and editing and all these <laughs> all these great things. But it does kind of take all of those things to to make it and have it deliver on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time that I met Adam when he was here working on his master's on quail and he's working on private lands and really looking at a quail population that um, in that southwestern part of ohio that was on private lands very dependent on private lands and kind of teetering a little bit you know to be able to um you know to make sure that we were putting the exact things on the ground that we need um, and i think we're in a time or we we probably have been for the last dozen years or so where whatever agency you're talking about whether it's a state agency or usda um you know fish and wildlife service where we've been really targeted in these practices so one of the things that you often heard years ago was, you know, random acts of conservation, mm -hmm. you know, kindness. We're just kind of putting it out where we could go. And now we've gotten to the point to say, you know what, we've got to be very strategic where we're putting um, our efforts because there's only so much, you know, funding or, or um, you know, people power to get it implemented. So um, we've got to be strategic in that. So that's kind of how I put it together. And then we've got to continue to tell that story. Mm -hmm. So I know we've worked with successful farming for a number of years and they've done some great stories with us, but when that one came out, it's kind of to a different, um, you know, a, a different theme than we're, we're used to talking about. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that Ohio state university project. Uh, as we, so we, I've got a list here, Adam, that you supply to some projects over the course of your career and, and some current ones that you're working on that'll resonate with pheasant hunters, quail hunters, and, and, and conservationists. But let's go to the kind of your beginnings in, in Ohio studying Bob Whites, which you, which you teased me with. I lived with Bob Whites for two years. Tell us about that. Yeah. I, I've only recently started to describe that study as, as that, that, that I just spent two winters with Bob Whites uh, but that really was what I did and, and it, um, with with others, with um, other grad students on the project and um, some technicians. But we would go out, capture these bob whites and put radio transmitters on them. And then we'd track them every single day. Uh, and you had to get 300 yards or so or even closer to where they were every single day of the winter to record their location and what we were studying, what habitat they were using. Um and when I look back on that now from my position as someone who basically drives a desk for a living, uh, I sort of reflect fondly on how insightful that was to, mm. to literally live with these birds and see where they were to spend my days where they spent their days um, to, to sort of pick up on some subtleties uh, there. And then also sort of the course level findings, our course, course level findings from that study were a couple of things. One, they basically never ventured away from woody cover in these ag landscapes. And so if there was a, a shrub, native shrub, fence row or um, thicket um, or a, 
forest edge that had some open canopy structure, they would be there. And if there wasn't, they wouldn't be there. Mm. Um, and so that was a good insight. And then the other insight is I'll never forget when we had this pretty severe winter, um, with snow deep enough in Southwestern Ohio that it made us go to eBay and buy snowshoes, in a in a bad rush <laughs> one winter. Um, we, we, there were so many birds dying that we had transmitters on that we were digging around the floor of the truck looking for magnets to turn the transmitters off. Cause these, all these transmitters have little magnets that turn the batteries on and off and to save the battery, you leave the magnet on mm-hmm. and we would always put the magnets on the refrigerator or something, but you'd lose them through time, but you never ran out of them. And there were so many birds dying in that two week period that we were literally scrambling to find magnets to turn our transmitters off, um, which is just to tell you about, you know, to remind us about the life history of the bobwhite, which is uh, they reproduce and die in excess. Mm -hmm. And sometimes during severe winter weather events like what we had in that year um, and witnessed firsthand, they really die in excess. And we estimate that fewer than 10% of the birds in that population survived that winter, uh, which is pretty insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so the lessons from that are, you know, wildlife ecologists would call that a demographically consequential, consequential event uh, Mm -hmm. when, when 10%, you know, one out of one out of 10 birds survives a winter, um, you know, that can have a lot of influence on, on what a population does. And uh, we found that, their proximity to woody cover actually increased the probability that they would survive that winter. And so it really kind of pointed for us towards this um, really important uh, consideration. We can't just think about nesting habitat. We have to think about how to get those birds through the winter by providing woody vegetation adjacent to food sources. It's for folks that are frequent listeners of the podcast. Um, they'll recognize the thread that's existed with every single quail biologist, particularly on the research side, in the importance of shrub cover to quail. Like Dwayne Elmore, you know, he he focused on that. Dr. Martin focused on that. Uh, Mark McConnell, like shrubs in bob whites. If you didn't know it before, if you're a bird hunter or if you're quail habitat manager, Shrubs are absolutely critical to, to quail, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely the key insight. And, and um, that's challenging, too. I'm sort of starting to look at Jim here because, you know, we're pretty good at planting prairie. And we can get a pretty good established, you know, diverse native mix in three to five years uh, here in the Corn Belt. But it's hard to manage woody vegetation. We've got, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's 10, 12 more years until you see responses. There's questions about species compositions and invasive species and uh, all sorts of things. Well, and you bring in prescribed burning and the importance of keeping woody vegetation at the right size, right? So that's another complicator. It is. And, you know, we had this all the time in Ohio. Jim mentioned we were working on private lands and we did some education with private landowners too. And people would always come up to us and say, I've lived on this farm for 30 years and not a thing has changed hmm. and there's no Bob Whites left. And you'd have to always tactfully remind them that in 30 years, every tree on that farm was growing. Hmm. And that has that can have a huge impact. Hmm. Even if you think that, 
nothing has changed on your farm in 30 years. Forget not that without management interventions, what was once shrubby vegetation would probably now be a closed canopy uh, forest. And um, it's, it's like the, you know, proverbial frog in boiling water. It's easy to, easy to miss, mm. you know, like people can just forget that trees are growing. Um, and, mm. and that can result in some real landscape change that again, is really hard to manage um, for, for Northern Bob Whites. And it's something I still spend a lot of time now that I'm on another, the Western side of the Bob White range. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about how we do that out here too. Right. It, it, it's really speaks the vulnerability of Bob Whites have in the winter speaks. It's super intuitive to see the volatility of the populations when you're talking about Iowa, right. Um, Northern Nebraska, like yeah. the, the edge of kind of the snow belt. It's like, yeah. well, there's a reason that we don't have a ton of Bob whites in Minnesota. They just, yeah. they couldn't, they couldn't make it. It's not as much a habitat issue as it is. They can't, they just can't survive snow on the ground for a long period of time. Yeah. There, I could go on. I, Bob whites are so fascinating and I could talk about them for hours, but what, one really like amazing thing about Bob whites is to think about all the places they live. Mm. They live in the desert mm -hmm. of South Texas. Mm -hmm. They live in what is seems like functionally a temperate rainforest in the southeastern coastal plains. Yeah. And then they live up here in these really cold, rugged landscapes um, that, that are quite desolate during the wintertime. They do have remarkable adaptations. Um, but what we find across that entire range is that they respond to structure, habitat mm. structure. They need woody vegetation, a place to escape extremes. So I bet Dwayne was actually talking about woody vegetation in the context of uh, heat yes. extremes. Yes, um, because of the microclimate of it being a yep. little cooler for them. Yep. 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 So, and we talk about them up here in uh, the opposite side, yeah, warmth. but temperature or yeah, thermal, uh, low, low temperatures. And so, um, hmm. yeah, so we, we find this sort of remarkable consistency in that they respond to this structural thing, this woody vegetation interspersed with food, and then some sort of herbaceous nesting structure, uh, no matter if it's the desert of South Texas or the cold, desolate landscapes of North Central Ohio. Right. Uh, one more question on the quail thread here, and then we'll we'll jump to the next study that uh, we've got on the list. But I'm thinking about late season quail hunting in states like Iowa, um, Nebraska, Kansas, where it is winter, seasons are open, late in the day. It, it, it makes me think that, you know, it, it, snow on the ground, cold, it, you're a hunter that's flushing a covey of birds right before sunset, it's making them, besides whatever one they shoot and kill, they're flushing a covey. It's making them pretty vulnerable to just dying of exposure because, it, it, again, you're the biologist, correct me here, but it, they need to come back together as a covey for the warmth, um, and they need to do that before really the sun sets. And if you're flushing a covey during rough conditions late in the year, you're really putting bobwhites, not as much on pheasants, but you're putting bobwhites in a vulnerable state. Is that, am I, am I a bleeding heart or is there some, some 
some ethical thought process that should be part of your decision making on what you hunt when you hunt. Yeah. Well, I think that I don't think you're being a bleeding heart because I think the same thing. And we even had it with research. Like I mentioned, we tracked these things and we would be really careful to not try to break up like flush and potentially break up the covey late in the day um, for the reasons you're describing. Because we know Bob White's, you know, use these roost discs at night where they all get in a circle and face outward. And there's real thermal advantages to that. They're literally keeping one another warm. Um, and in these Northern climates, uh, isolating a bird, um, because of being pressured with hunting or flushing for any reason, um, I think could, you know, in the long term decrease their survival. It's interesting though, that actually, I don't know of a study that's like explicitly addressed that we would have, have ways of studying that, but I just don't know that, that people have, uh, I certainly have questions, um, about that and, the only study that I was thinking that was coming to mind was this really cool work that Chris Williams did for his PhD uh, in Kansas in like the late early two thousands. I think he's a professor at university of Delaware now, but um, he published a couple of papers on the optimal cubby size. Hmm. Uh, and they found like pretty compelling evidence from a couple of different ways of studying this, that something around 11 mm. birds is like an optimal covey size. Now that doesn't mean if you've got a 15 bird covey on your farm, you need to go shoot four. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, but I am saying like there's pretty compelling evidence that like once you go below that number, mm. your probability of not surviving actually increases. Mm. So if you're in the company of 10 others, you're going to have a better chance of surviving than if you're in the company, say, of four others. And that's because that's fewer eyes looking for predators. It's fewer um, birds foraging, you know, for uh, resources. And then there's this these thermal these thermal considerations. And so there is some some information about optimal group sizes that I think is really interesting, and particularly in northern landscapes um, where bobwhites tend to be really low density. Um, and that means they, you know, they may start as a 15 bird covey and it is lonely out there. Mm. Like there is not another covey around. If that 15 bird covey gets to eight, then it could sort of be like a spiral down to mm. a zero bird covey by the end of the year. Uh, whereas in higher density landscapes, you could have an eight bird covey that finds a, you know, a six bird covey. They combine up later in the season. And then they're back to that sort of optimal cubby size. So there's these like really interesting dynamics with this bird uh, that are, are unique because they're not very mobile. They can't move very long distances right. or they choose not to. Um, and then they rely on others to keep them warm and help them avoid predators and all that stuff. So um, there's so much work that could be done on just that fascinating behavioral ecology of, of bobwhites and these cubbies that... Um, yeah, there's a lifetime. Yeah. There's there's multiple lifetimes of research to be done uh, on those kind of questions. Is it really? I mean, you're right about the the geographic um, landscape that bobwhites live. The how they have the covey strategy. I I call it the Mister Mom advantage. We talked about that on the podcast with Bill Palmer, where the males incubate eggs, mm -hmm. and you yep. know that you can actually have you know like a hen could lay three clutches. Yeah. So they, they, on one hand, they're super vulnerable, 
right, to population declines. But given the right conditions, habitat and weather, they can explode like virtually no other upland bird because of that Michael Keaton, Mr. Mom advantage where, yeah. right, where the, where the males help and raise, raise offsprings in the springtime and throughout yeah. the summer. And that's the, I said they reproduce and die in excess. And I observed the die in excess mm. part. And you just described the reproduce in mm. excess. They're literally, and Jim could attest, they're literally the textbook example of a species that has what ecologists call a fast life cycle, which is like, oh, get all the breeding out, get the, you know, <laughs> get your genes into the next generation and do it right now. There is no, no time to wait in contrast to like a swan or something that, mm. you know, doesn't breed until its fourth year. Bob White's like waste no time uh, reproducing because, uh, you know, perhaps they just don't take any days for granted. Maybe we could learn from Bob White uh, in that way. It's like Dead Poet Society, right? Carpe <laughs> diem right. for the Bob White. That's All right. right. All right, let's switch to uh, uh, Taylor Shir Shirley. This is a current student of yours, correct? Uh, she's graduated, oh, she actually. She's working for the Iowa DNR now. Okay, yeah. so Taylor studied pheasant nesting on a hot topic in, over the course of the last two years. I don't remember been at pheasants forever and quail forever 20 years. And I don't remember ever using this term until maybe two, three years ago. And that's cover crops. And what Taylor Shirley studied was do ground nesting hen pheasants use cover crops for uh, spring reproduction. So let's start with what's a cover crop for folks that maybe don't know, um, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. So a cover crop is, you know, any plant, almost always an annual plant planted, not as a cash crop, but something to just cover and protect the soil during periods when farmers are not growing a cash crop. And so that's sort of what we, that's what we mean when we say a cover crop mm. is something other than the primary cash crop. And the situation here in the corn belt is that for about seven months of the year, there's not a cash crop in the ground right. or at least growing out of the ground. And it results in this scenario. If you drive around the corn belt right now, you see a lot of bare soil. I mean, it's just nothing. The, out there. That, the black desert, right? The black desert. That's right. And um, when there's nothing, you know, we know birds don't nest where there's nothing growing. Mm -hmm. And so um, also we know that soil is more prone to erosion uh, nutrients like nitrogen primarily is uh, more prone to leaching and loss from the soil profile. Um, and uh, flooding can be worse because there's nothing to mm -hmm. hold the water back uh, when we have nothing growing on, in Iowa's case, something like, you know, 23 million acres of land for seven months of the year. And so uh, cover crops are a solution to those challenges that I just mentioned. And so um, there's been interest in implementing cover crops in that seven month period, growing cover crops, terminating them, and then growing the corn or soybean cash crop after and before. Um, and a lot of wildlife ecologists, myself included, were intrigued at whether or not growing something on that ground for those seven months would create a scenario where we might find some suitable nesting habitat. Mm -hmm. And which would have been One, the Yahtzee, right? Yeah. It would be right. it would be the Yahtzee. Everybody's I just, holding their, you know, crossing their fingers and yeah. hopefully that yeah. it, it so, would create quality wildlife habitat. 
Right. So for comparison, like the peak of CRP in Iowa, I think is like 2.2 million acres. Mm. It's something in that Mm -hmm. range. And Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like around a little over 2 million acres. Um, There's 23 million acres of corn and soybeans. There's something like 36 or 38 million acres total of land. And so just for comparison, that's what, 10 times uh, the amount of cropland than we have in CRP. So imagine even if there were one-tenth the pheasants nesting in cover crops, we could double our pheasant population in cover crops by having them spread thin Mm -hmm. across 23 million acres of corn and soybeans that could theoretically have a cover crop. So it's like an exciting proposition, Mm -hmm. but they're not small grains where we find in the West, for example, and we find from historical literature, like in Iowa, um, where pheasants do readily nest. It's for small grains, yeah, wheat, flax, things like that. Yeah, they... They are small grains, technically. I mean, that's what's planted, but they're not small grains in the pr- traditional like production sense because they're terminated basically as soon as they start to grow. Mm. And a lot of pheasant nesting is occurring like at the tail ends of small grain production. Um, Brian Pauly studied pheasant nesting in um, central South Dakota, um, like in the epicenter of the pheasant range in South Dakota around winter. And um, he found that pheasants did really well in small grain fields until harvest. And then it got ugly, you know, like for obvious reasons, like you've shaved off all that cover. Um, and so, but, but there, you know, pheasant nesting in small grain fields was really consequential and it, it does help sustain those populations. Um, what Taylor found in her research, though, is that cover crops just aren't living up to that potential of small grains because the real opportunity for nesting cover comes after those cover crops are terminated. They're killed and, and um, that coincides with the planting of the cash crop. And so there's a ton of disturbance, like right when pheasants would be nesting, mm. there's the planter that comes through and the equipment to spray the cover crops and things like that. Uh, and then we just didn't see very much growth in these cover crops. They just didn't really get very tall um, to provide much nesting cover. Even we thought maybe the residue from the cover crops in the cash crop field would provide suitable nesting cover. Mm. Um but we searched and searched, uh, Taylor searched um, for, for nests and cover crop fields. And we just very rarely found them. And when we did find them, they weren't active. Like mm. there was no indication that uh, bird was going to pull off a nest. So what we went into the study thinking was that thing, like I said, like, well, even if one tenth of the pheasants that uh, a nest, uh, 10% nesting density of pheasants in a cover crop field compared to say a CRP field spread out over 23 million acres would be a really compelling proposition. Uh, we don't even think we would see that. Mm. We just don't think that these birds are perceiving these cover crop fields as suitable. Um, and even if they were, they, it seems awfully improbable that they would pull off um, a clutch given all the disturbance that goes on out there. So the analysis, and maybe you haven't, weren't able to study the set like part two is so the these birds that would try to nest in the cover crops, but then it'd be terminated, and they have to bounce to something else, and then the egg, you know, they'd lay less eggs on a re-nesting. Yep. Is there 
is there actually a negative impact of cover crops on pheasant nesting because it's sort of a potential that gets taken away? So it's a great question and it's definitely plausible um, that there could be a negative. A few thoughts. We tried to design our study to be able to test that explicitly. And the best way to do that is to radio mark hens and see exactly what they do, Mm. like where they pick for their first nest and what happens to their second nest. And we had dreams of having 50 radio marked hens running around on this landscape with really high cover crop adoption. Mm -hmm. And we found it was very hard Mm. to catch pheasants and so hard that we like basically couldn't catch them. Um, and, and that has to do with that. That's a known challenge in pheasant research. You can catch them when they're starving and they'll go into a funnel trap, but otherwise these buggers are so smart. and so hard to catch. Um, we did end up catching some, but, um, it took us a while. And so we can't really answer your question, Bob, because, um, because the only way to do that would be to follow individuals and we just weren't able to follow and keep up with individuals. Sure. But my hunch is that I, we just, we searched so many acres of these cover crop fields and just weren't finding pheasants in comparison to, we searched a ton of native warm season grass and CRP fields and we were finding pheasants all over mm-hmm. the place. Um, I just, I, I don't think the birds are settling into these landscapes at levels that make them what, we call like a sink or a trap like like it looks like good habitat the birds choose it and then they Mm. literally get driven over by the equipment it just seems to me like the pheasants aren't even processing those cover crop fields as suitable habitat now i can already i'm already thinking like i'm gonna hear from a listener that says well i saw a pheasant in my cover crop field I'm not saying they don't nest out there. I'm just saying it's really low density and it seems improbable that they're going to be, you know, consequential and the the cover. Well, and to answer different criticism, we're not hammering on cover crops because they do provide, like, as you mentioned, benefits for water quality, flood mitigation, soil health. But what you're telling us and what the research shows is for wildlife, it's not it's not the crown jewel Yahtzee that we hoped it might be. It, it yeah. provides some other natural resource benefits, but again, we're back to prairie, brush. You know, if we want pheasants and quail in the landscape, we need grasslands. Yep, yep, that, and that's exactly it, Bob. It's a perfect way to summarize it. I always just say this, that we need perennial vegetation. Mm-hmm. And frankly, water quality, soil health, flooding, all these other environmental challenges, they need perennial vegetation too. Like annual solutions, like annual annual crops or monoculture solutions um, aren't going to benefit wildlife or are going to benefit wildlife in sort of small and rare proportions. Um, What we need is to think about places where diverse native perennial vegetation that wildlife use can fit into our working landscapes. And that takes us back to that study in the successful farming article Mm -hmm. uh, where we're talking about that. And that's sort of, in fact, the conclusion to Taylor's paper um, describing the outcomes from these, this pheasant study and cover crops is just that it's like, sure. Cover crops are good for water and soil. Like we're not saying don't do them, but if we want to have wildlife in these working landscapes, we need perennial vegetation 
And there's a lot of good ideas of places where we should put perennial vegetation back into these landscapes, like places where people are losing money farming. Right, right. A la precision ag and using science and and data to tell a story. Um, Exactly. You you tease this a a little bit and, you know, it's tough to capture pheasants for research. And, you know, I've seen videos from the University of Nebraska with college students driving around on Jeeps with net guns Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night with shining lights. And it looks fun as hell. I I think (laughs) I mentioned it. We should auction off a seat (laughs) in that truck at the next pheasant fest and we could raise thousands of dollars. Well, I know I would bid on it. Um, But then you had mentioned in, in, in the prep work here for this conversation that you guys actually figured out a new innovative way to capture birds for research purposes. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, all credit to Taylor here. And then some of her other graduate students that she was working with, like Blake Mitchell was studying ducks with, um, with a drone and a thermal camera. Um, And we can see ducks with uh, thermal cameras pretty well out on open water. Uh, And we thought, well, if we need to know where the birds are, and then we need to net them. And so maybe the drone with a thermal camera could tell us where they are, and then maybe we'd be able to net them. <laughs> and so our first attempt at that was in the daylight, and we found out really quickly that pheasants can see nets. Hmm. Like like bob whites, we caught bob whites in Ohio with what's called mist nets, which are these like really fine nets that we put up and birds fly into them. Hmm. Um, Bob whites will fly half a mile straight into a mist net. Like they do not <laughs> see them. It's so funny. I mean, huh. they, literally they'll fly a half a mile into a mist net. We were flushing pheasants 10 feet from a dis- mist net and they were like doing some like acrobatics to avoid these nets. It, I'd never see anything like it. Mm. There's some species of birds that are known for being able to see nets, like some shorebird species that'll like fly along and then just like elevate over the net and then elevate right back down. Um, but I had no idea pheasants would do that. So pheasants see mist nets. We learned that. And so the, our first attempt in the daytime was unsuccessful. And so Taylor and her crew ended up figuring out that we could do this at night. We got an FAA waiver to be able to fly our drone in the dark. And um, the birds really stand out on thermal because there's no sun and no sun means no other heat sources. And so mm. we find the birds and then you walk over them with these nets uh, spread out between two observers on a PVC pole and a walkie talkie to the drone pilot. And the drone pilot sees the bird's thermal signature and the two net operators thermal signature. And she would say, keep going, keep going, keep going, drop it. And she would drop, they would drop the net and then they would just like run to the middle. And the videos we have of this on thermal are so funny because you would see the birds flush and they'd hit the net. And then you would see the observers like scrambling to grab the birds all in the dark. And then every once in a while, the bird would get out and you could see like the observers like grab their heads. And like, man, it was so funny. So, so she did that during the pandemic. So like 2020 is when she was um, figuring out that technique. And we were just getting going when the university shut down travel mm. and uh, gatherings and all the stuff with all the uncertainty of the mm-hmm. pandemic in the spring of 2020. And so uh, she caught 21 birds that way. Mm. Uh, and we published a paper on it, but it wasn't enough. Uh, I think if the pandemic wouldn't have hit that spring, I think we would have put 50 birds on the air. I mean, it was really working. Mm. Um, but um, 
the pandemic did hit. So we didn't, we didn't get there, but it was pretty cool. And I know some people are doing comparable things uh, in other States now. It's not cheap, but a lot of us researchers have these drones and thermal cameras now for all sorts of wildlife things. It's almost just like a cost of doing wildlife research these days. We all have drones and thermal cameras. And so if you've got one in your lab, um, you can catch birds with it. It's pretty cool. Well, if you need a net operator, I can be in Ames in yeah. three hours on short notice. <laughs> you let me know. It, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Now, Bob, I think the risk is there's no way to tell a striped skunk from a, from a pheasant. <laughs> on a thermal camera. Oh, I've been sprayed before. So. <laughs> okay, okay. We we never had it happen, but we actually put we wrote that paper. And we put like kind of a funny line in that paper that said basically just that we, we never had happen, but we were like, you know, there is a chance that you drop a net and start walking right up to a striped skunk in the <laughs> middle of the night. So uh, I feel sorry for the first crew that, that finds that out the hard way. <laughs> well, it'll happen. And uh, we'll try to get that person on the podcast. Until the first <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. So let's move to, uh, is it Zach Deans? Is that yeah, Zach Deans? Zach yep. Deans, who's doing a multi-state August roadside survey project, and this comes as a result of uh, the National Pheasant Plan, which which Jim is a, a part of. So I'm really curious about um, like how these concepts come together. So maybe start there with this as an example, and take us through what Zach's trying to learn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, we started the podcast talking about like what wildlife ecologists do is try to like count things we can't see mm -hmm. or count things that don't want to be seen. And Zach's is a really good example. Zach's master's research that we're talking about here is a really good example of one such study. Um, and the situation there is I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with August roadside surveys, uh, lots of States, especially like Midwestern and Great Plains states use um, something like a late summer road-based survey to count pheasant broods um, and try to project um, reproduction conditions, like how well the birds did during the summer. Uh, and ultimately, people often talk about these as um, predicting harvest conditions. Right. And so I know here in Iowa, at least every year, it's like kind of a big deal when the press release comes out about um, whether or not the pheasants are up or down and what that's going to mean for hunting conditions. And there's a long legacy of doing that. I mean, it goes back to the fifties that people have been driving these roadside surveys and counting birds. Um, but we know of course that we don't see all those birds. Uh, like you don't, it's not a census. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, like you can't go out there and just knock on all the doors and ask how many, how many pheasant broods are out there. Uh, we're relying on the behavior of those birds to be somewhat uniform uh, among days and among years to provide us with a reliable index. And there's a lot of indications that perhaps these indices are not all that reliable. Um, for example, we see like implausible population swings. We'll see a huge drop in one year and then a huge increase in the next year that just wouldn't, you know, be biologically plausible. And we can attribute that to, well, what we suspect is that conditions along those surveys in that year were just not favorable for seeing in the year with the drop, were just not favorable for seeing broods. So the broods were there, but they went undetected by the observers. And so, um, in some examples there, of those conditions, like 
it's not a do like it, 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 ideal conditions is a dewy morning which pushes the brood out to the gravel to sort of dry off and grit yeah. and if it's dry they don't need to or yeah. you know there was a hypothesis this past summer about all the canadian wildfires and the smoke and it's like well the birds are not coming out because of this all the smoke in the air whether or not that's true or not yeah. right there was it, it was a summer filled with smoke in every state count sort of unexpectedly dropped farther and, but yeah. but to your point it's there's some variables that change year to year which right. makes it like okay how do we account for that so go back and go ahead exactly. and take it from there yep yeah so exactly that and the good news is is that there's lots of statistical ways that we can do that if nothing else our statistical ways could at least tell us how certain we are in various population declines. You know, like when you see a poll or a survey on the news and they say plus or minus mm -hmm. 4% margin of error. Well, those surveys today don't have anything like that. And statistical techniques can give us that plus or minus, and it can kind of make us a little bit more certain in um, what these populations are doing. And so um, the National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan was this collaboration between states where wild pheasant populations are or historically were found. Uh, and they identified in that plan one interest and uh, challenge is some sort of coordinated national monitoring effort for pheasants. Uh, and the August roadside survey was a starting point. Mm -hmm. And so what they wanted to do is um, evaluate basically conditions, like you said, do and other factors uh, that um, could influence the survey and then give us that essentially that margin of error mm -hmm. estimate. Um, and so that's what we've done. Um, we had 13 different states participate in 2019, 2020, and 2021. Um, 135 different wildlife biologists in those 13 states drove routes mm. um, about five times each. The range was like two to nine, but um, about five times each, they drove the exact same route. And then we use this sort of fancy statistical model that says, uh, that looks across all those replicated routes and looks for consistencies in those counts. And then from that, we can estimate what the probability of seeing a pheasant on each run of the route is. Hmm. And then and importantly, not just the probability, but some level of precision surrounding it. And the what we ended up finding, and we're still working on this, Zach's writing his thesis as we speak. Mm. In fact, it's what I'll be reading tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, but uh, what we're finding is that detection, which means the probability of seeing any one given brood in a morning, is pretty low. And what we estimate, it's around 35%. Mm. And so that means drive a route three times and you'll see that brood statistically one time. Um, the good news from this study is that it's actually remarkably consistent. Hmm. Like it's almost always 35% and there's not a lot of sway. And what would have been concerning would have been if we'd have done this study and found that it was... 35%, but the confidence interval, like the the range or the precision of this estimate of detection ranged from, I don't know, 15% in a good year to, you know, 75% in a bad year. 
that would mean so much inconsistency in the way the birds behave year over year that the, that the index would be almost entirely useless. Um, what we actually find is that although we only see a third of the birds on a survey, we pretty consistently only see a third of the birds. And it is relatively predictable with the conditions, like you said, do. And then also they like sunny mornings and they don't like wind. They don't want to mm. be out on the roads on a windy morning. And so if we tell our observers to go on a dewy, sunny, calm morning, they're probably pretty consistently going to see the birds, the same birds. And that's, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges that Zach found is that we also found that soil moisture was consequential and soil moisture could be like a proxy for drought. Uh, and soil moisture changes over broad scales. So like Western South Dakota and Eastern South Dakota are going to have pretty mm -hmm. drastically different soil moistures. Uh, and it also varies over time scales, like with drought. Right. So sure. some years in Iowa is more droughty than other years. And so although we may see 33 percent on average in the long term, we may have years where we're because the soil moisture is, say, really high. We may be seeing 45 percent of the birds. And in years where soil moisture is really low, we may only be seeing 25 percent mm. of the birds. And so that's how it is that we could have scenarios where we have these biological implausible uh, population fluctuations. And the takeaway from this, 13 states, the 50, you know, 1,100 routes, or 200, 200 routes, 1,100 surveys, 2,000 broods, all this stuff, is we need to use these statistical models to survey pheasants. Like, let us use these statistical models. They're complicated, but not like, sure. not too complicated. Sure. Um, and let us get this certainty. Even if we only see a third, that's fine. Because we can just triple the number and we know that's how many were out there and we can put some sort of uh, confidence limit around it. And then we're going to track the soil moisture thing and say like, okay, in some years we really need to be aware that our uncorrected counts may be biased because of high or low soil moisture and we need to correct them with these statistical models. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's kind of a cool example of all these states coming together. This study was funded by seven different states. And I mentioned 13 different states contributed data. I mean, it's a big collaborative effort um, all coming together to answer this question, to improve our management. And ultimately that's for stakeholders. These agencies want to help hunters. They want to help landowners and decision makers really understand what these populations are doing. Um, and that can inform, you know, policy that can inform hunting. I mean, that can inform a lot of things. And this is a neat kind of win-win. And along the way, we're training a graduate student, Zach, to go on and be a you know a successful wildlife biologist himself too. So kind of a neat example of what we do. It, it is. And it's like, oh, okay, let's lead with the science and get to what that number is. But I want to back up a little bit just and, and talk about it. roadside counts in general you know, when marketers get involved, they're like, well, the numbers go up, numbers go down. <laughs> yeah. It's going to influence license sales and oh my gosh. And then the politics gets involved. Like um, fundamentally as a wildlife scientist, tell me the value of knowing like a population size in the ups and downs. Like it, for some, it's super in intuitive why you would want to know that. But mm -hmm. it, I mean, it does speak to how we better manage all the variables by knowing 
the population, correct? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, as a wildlife ecologist, yeah, I don't care about individual harvest success rates. I mean, that's just not the nature of my job Mm -hmm. and some wildlife biologists do, and that's important. Um, but I care about like population stability Mm -hmm. and you, the expression we learn and that we teach is you can't manage what you don't monitor. Um, and so we can't manage pheasant populations or quail populations or any wildlife population if we don't understand the nature of their population fluctuations. Um, in some cases, it points to like big challenges like um, winter weather events. And we see these big population declines and it's like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. We know sometimes mother nature deals us a tough hand and we see these big population declines, but on other timescales, we see big things like the homogenization of agriculture across the corn belt has led to widespread persistent population declines of ringneck pheasants, period. That's because pheasants don't really do well in corn and soybeans. And we've switched the system from a diversified system that had hay and small grains and perennial crops and um, weedy fence rows and things like that uh, into a system that just has those two crops. And pheasant populations, because of these long-term monitoring schemes, have drastically declined all across the Midwest. Um, And if we didn't have those wildlife ecologists out there doing an imperfect survey, but a useful survey, no less, in the 1950s and 60s, documenting pheasant populations then, we wouldn't be able to tell that story today uh, and point to a world where we could have three, four, five times the pheasant population if we did bring back some diversity in these agricultural systems that we've hemorrhaged since the 70s. It's also like I've seen Jim, whether he's talking to a state meeting of volunteers or a representative, use a graph with illustrating where CRP acres are and the mirror that exists on that same graph of bird numbers going up. And, you know, as we become more savvy in our organization, just look at, well, monarchs follow that same trajectory and honeybees. And it's like, okay, you know, that's a, there's a reason we're uh, monitoring monarch populations down in South America, right. To, To get a handle on how things are doing with the habitat management. Otherwise it's just to a point that Jim made er earlier, it's like random acts of conservation. You're like, well, we think it's the right thing, but how do you measure it? You know, this is at least one of those variables on the graph to be able to chart it and understand, well, holy wah, there's a youper term for you. Holy wah, the (laughs) CRP made birds. It shows right here. Yeah. So. Um, so I, I mentioned CRP, the next and the final, um, research project that I want to talk about, it's a different acronym. That acronym is equipped environmental quality incentives program. Um, and you're using, here's another acronym that I had to look up ARUs to monitor Bob white quail distribution. And for listeners an ARU is an autonomous recording unit. You get the right ARU. You got okay. it. Yep. <laughs> so using a recording unit on the landscape to find out what types of habitat quail are using on um, areas that have been 
enrolled in EQIP to manipulate habitat in one way, shape, or form. Is that an accurate overview of where we're going next? Yeah, and also to sort of inform the strategy, to use Jim's expression again, the random acts of conservation thing. Um, this study is looking to tell us about where bobwhites are found on the landscape uh, and where we think bobwhites could be found but are not found uh, to inform places where conservation interventions, like through the Environmental Qualities Incentives Program, uh, could be effective in helping bobwhite populations. And so um, there's a little bit of evaluation like, okay, what's the impact of EQIP implementation? Um, but we're also looking at like, okay, how could we target EQIP, EQIP uh, practices into places where they're most likely to have a big impact on the birds? Hmm. Um, so those are the kind of two aspects of that study. So Jim, I think our listeners can visualize CRP. And we can visualize all sorts of practices when see with CRP, you know, Bob White buffers or, you know, a farmable wetland and things, things like that. It's harder to visualize equip, paint a picture of what equip looks like to a bird hunter. Well, equip um, has been around since the 1990 farm bill or no 98, I guess. And um, initially, that was also a program that really didn't have um, a whole lot of focus for wildlife. But um, I'd say over the last, you know, 15 years or so, Working Lands for Wildlife especially, um, it, it does provide um, some habitat. And especially with the 2018 Farm Bill, where in law it said that um, at least 10% of the EQIP funding had to go from wildlife, and that was up from 5%. Mm -hmm. Um, from the previous bills, but I think that we can visualize it um, easier or, or one of the ways that, that I like to visualize it is in quail country where you are doing some of that edge feathering or softening that edge in a woodlot, um, you know, the hedgerow or in the Southeast where we're doing some thinning and prescribed fire. Um, we can do it there. Um, on the pheasant side in the Midwest, we may be doing some pasture renovation or um, removing invasive species, mm. you know, vegetative species that, that may be better for, for pheasants and quail. Um, but it's different than going from a crop field to grass or, you know, potentially having that CRP field going back into production. So you might not see that, but just know that in any given year and, and EQIP and CRP funding are about the same of $2 billion per year. So that's $200 million at least um, from, from an equip for, for wildlife. So we've seen a lot of benefits there and it, it's just getting, you know, better every time we, we, uh, implement the program. I might be wrong on this visual, but for me, when I think about equip, I think about kind of grazing practices and mm -hmm. I, to me, it's, I visualize the world's best sharp tailed grouse habitat. So like it, it's, it's keeping sort of, native short grass prairie um sort of intact as yeah because you know you don't find sharpies in any grass that are up to your thighs so there's some sort of management happening through a grazing regime using equip to keep the habitat sort of diverse and managed in the absence of fire on the landscape is that an accurate way of thinking about that in places like North Dakota, South Dakota, um, Montana. 
Yeah, that's a great example. Um, and again, a lot of that in the in the grazing systems, Oregon and your forestry system, mm -hmm. where CRP or some of the other practices don't uh, necessarily fit. Um, but yeah, a grazing system is is a is a perfect example. Okay. So, so what have you found in in this project to date, Adam? Well, we actually are just getting this one started. Okay. This is a this is a brand new one. I get you know the ARUs, acoustic recording units or autonomous recording units, as you said. We've been messing with those in a just a small collaborative project with the DNR since 2017, uh, and we find they're pretty good at hearing bobwhites in the fall. Hmm. Um, and so that's why we're using them is um, bobwhites. You know, you can go out and listen to male bobwhites like all summer long do the, you know, what they're named for the bobwhite mm -hmm. uh, vocalization. But I don't actually know that that's the best indicator of habitat quality to go back to the money ball thing because a male bobwhite is like, has nothing better to do all summer <laughs> than to just sit on every fence post it can and just whistle its head off. And so it may not always be a good proxy for a good habitat, but Coveys are a really good proxy for good habitat because if there's a covey in that landscape, then that means that they survive the um, the the funnel of reproduction, summer survival, reproduction, and are now going into the winter um, with with a chance to you know sustain that population going forward. And so we use um, ARUs enable us to monitor coveys in a way that it's really hard for human observers because mm. these bobwhites in the fall call for like 15 minutes on clear mornings uh like 30 minutes before the sun comes up they're super picky and that's the only time that they're predictable we can do that on like small study areas we have since the 50s uh used fall covey call surveys to monitor bob whites um but we can't do that like at what we would say a landscape scale like study multiple farms all over the place because well, one, it's hard to be up that early in the morning and we often, you know, oversleep or we get stuck in a traffic light. We miss that really narrow window uh, or it's hard to be there on the right weather and everything else. And so what we're finding is that ARUs are pretty good substitutes mm. for human observers to tell us yes or no, a Bob White Covey is there or a Bob White Covey is not. And so we're going to deploy these at a landscape sale. And I should mention PF and the University of Georgia, Dr. Martin, who you've mentioned a couple of times, are doing a comparable study all across the bobwhite range, actually, uh, looking at equip practices. So they're, they're different studies. We're doing a really fine scale study here in Iowa, huh. um, but we're aligning to it that UGA study. And that'll be a really neat QF, PF and university and NRCS collaboration to see some light in a few years, too. Does that happen quite frequently? I'm assuming the world of wildlife research is at that kind of the finest universities with reputations in wildlife and agriculture, pretty small. So the, the universe of the Dwayne Elmore's and the James Martin's and the Mark McConnell's and Adam Jenkins is a small world. And you, you all sort of collaborate to, okay, here's what we're testing and how can we use this to validate or figure out, you know, if there's differences geographically, is there, there are a lot of collaboration that goes on. There is a lot of collaboration, learning from one another. Um, the kind of cool thing about all these state universities is we all tend to have like a pretty state focus too. Mm. Like I partner with Iowa DNR and we work on things and, um, you know, others like Dwayne does that in Oklahoma. And, um, but then there's also these interstate 
efforts and, and they're very collaborative. You know, we've been talking about this precision ag stuff. Well, like Mark McConnell's just done some wonderful writing and 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 educating on that for years since his dissertation. And we apply that up here in our education and our research. And uh and then James is like, you know, the national, I mean, he's the I would say the number one thinker on Bob White ecology, Bob White conservation, and just does some really important work that applies all across the land, the land, but, or all across the range. But, um, at the end of the day, we also, it's good to have people dispersed because we get to live with them. Sure. We know what these weathers, what these winter weather, this winter weather's like, or we know what invasive species challenges we have. And, uh, so you get kind of that finer grain understanding by having people dispersed across different universities as well. Right. I was, so. As I look at the clock, I, I want to thank you both for all the time you've given in, in sort of transit. It's obviously fascinating, right? We, there is so much that's applicable from a habitat management perspective or a hunting perspective. They're synonymous. And yeah. it, it, you know, clearly I can go down rabbit holes <laughs> that, that are super exciting, but I will be respectful of your time and sort of transition to a close here. And we touched on this, Jim, um, a little bit. All of this research adds to the collective good for an organization like us on a conservation with a conservation mission that hits the ground. And one of the ways is what you do in taking this data that that Adam and, and Dr. Martin and Dr. McConnell and this whole university grouping that, that they bring to our conservation organization, and then you take it to DC. And, and, and how does it help you argue, we really need this to happen in the farm bill or this to happen? I'm assuming the research speaks volumes when you sit down at a senator's desk. Yeah, um, money ball might not work in that situation. <laughs> so we've got to have, since I'll just bring it right back to where we started. Um, no, but, but having this, uh, you know, all of this information we always have, we've, we've been grounded in, in wildlife and conservation science to be able to shape, you know, policies and programs or even individual practices. I mean, look what the research that was done by state agencies in Mississippi state that created CP 33, you know, a practice for, you know, wildlife and, and Bob white buffers. And that's been on the landscape for, you know, 15 years mm -hmm. now. Um, and so what's the next opportunity to do that or to tweak something? Or if it's not work, you know, maybe we try it. And, you know, maybe initially we thought cover crops were going to be a little bit more beneficial for wildlife, but it's still got some great, it still needs to be on the landscape. We're going to utilize that, but we know it's not going to uh, be beneficial as much for wildlife. So, you know, being able to, to take this research and it ends up in a thesis, it's peer reviewed and published. And then we write an article about it that ends up in successful mm -hmm. farming or, you know, the PF or QF journal, and then it just can have tremendous impact. So, um, yeah, we look forward to continuing to do that as we get into the next farm and, bill. And something that I really appreciate and value, and I, you know, to spend a moment on it for our members to think about, here we have Jim Inglis, who's a biologist, educated as a biologist, who is now savvy in the ways of politics in Washington, D.C. And that's very purposeful that Jim is, Jim's got a unique talent set that we we couldn't go out and replicate with just anybody. You know, somebody that has the biology mind 
but that can also work in the halls of Washington, D.C. to create the policy that hits the ground to create more pheasants and more quail. And that, it, you know, is one of the beautiful components in my perspective of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is to have, you know, I think in a previous podcast I talked about next to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we have more biologists on staff than any other employer in the com- country. Mm. We're the number two employer of biologists in the country, cool. which is mind boggling, but it's not simply having biologists that work with landowners, which is critically important. We also have biologists like Jim that work in Washington, D.C. on the House and the Senate Ag Committee creating the next farm bill. So when you send your member dollars in to become a member of Pheasants Forever, just know that that's paying for having the right people in the right places that are going to make birds, whether it's, you know, it's just the planting or the acquisition of one acre or the creation of a farm bill that impacts millions and millions of acres. So I, I went on another diatribe, but I think it's, it's important to see sort of the level of perspective on how some of the hirings are made inside this organization. Like Jim isn't a lifelong politician that found a job in conservation. He's a lifelong biologist that found a job to affect policy, pushing a desk, uh, but actually having tangible benefits for people that get dirt underneath their fingernails. And and I see Adam shaking his head because I know from the biologists in the university systems that I've talked to, that's a valuable component that organizations like ours play for you as well, isn't it, Adam? Yeah, I actually wrote something down earlier when we were talking about extension and you, you had started talking about PF and and sort of like our collaborative role. And uh, this is actually a perfect time to bring it back up because I didn't, we moved on from that and I didn't have a chance to say it, but we have this expression and extension, the best ideas come in the front door. And that's to sort of just like reflect the reality of like people living, you know, in these places are observing things in a really fine grained way in a way some academician in a, in Mm. a library or classroom somewhere just doesn't do. And so we need to listen really thoughtfully. And um, I think that that applies too for PF and it definitely applies in my own personal experiences. You guys have so many people out there working and listening, uh, walking on farms, helping people manage wildlife habitat, observing wildlife habitat, managing Mm -hmm. lighting prescribed fires like doing all this work uh and that is a system that creates a lot of really good ideas Mm -hmm. in that have that have filtered um through all aspects of our professional discourse and so um yeah i i I agree and i admire the agency i've admired the agency on every corner of the corn belt that i've worked on Um, my first extension work ever was doing quail management workshops with quail forever in southwestern ohio we were collaborating with uh farm bill biologists down there uh taking the results of our research out and helping people manage bob whites in southwestern ohio and uh, we still do it every day today on monarchs i mean you guys are like leaders on monarchs and we do it on habit you know all sorts of different habitat here in iowa so um yes i think it's uh, i really admire the contributions of of QFPF staff to to this ecosystem of of land stewardship uh, that we have. Cool, and I know Jim would say 
you know, a lot of the ideas that he gets for improvements to CRP come from where, Jim? Well, it comes from the landowners themselves and the people that are at boots on the ground. I mean, a landowner will tell a biologist that, hey, this this buffer works pretty good. And then a few later, as we've got a few years later, we've got agencies and researchers doing looking at it. And then we end up with CP33 mm -hmm. or, so, or safe, right? Safe, came, safe. Yep. state. Um, oh, help me with that. State acres. State Acres for Wildlife. Yeah, the yeah. one that the acronym doesn't actually match up, but we, we'll leave that. <laughs> All right. So as we as we uh, close out, um, what's your closing thoughts for for this conversation? And yeah, you know, I'll give you a potential. Um, what's your? You could offer a big idea that you wanted to use uh, research on to figure out, or or you could go a different direction. What's your closing thought? We'll start. We'll start with Jim. Um, how, how would you put a bow on this particular episode? Well, there's there's still a lot of unknowns out there um, on what we're able to do in in the in the private lands and public lands and and wildlife um, space. And so we need to continue to use the sound science and and do the best that we can. We're not always going to get it right, and things are changing mm -hmm. too. Uh, landscapes are changing over decades and, and we've got to use maybe new techniques or, or uh, new practices. So, you know, just continuing th this flow, um, you know, at, at, whether it's from DC uh, policy and programs or, you know, the landowner that has an idea. And we had some of that even as, re as recently as the 2018 yeah. Farm Bill with trying to f make um, CRP a little bit more flexible on the grazing side. Um, to make that program work better for for ranchers and and livestock owners, so it, it happens every time and every time we go through a farm bill or work on a piece of policy. So just keep that dialogue and the feedback going back and forth. And if listeners, landowners wanted to connect with you, Jim, and offer up a, a thought on an idea to consider in DC, how would they how would they reach out to you? So we do have a policy landing page. Um, if you go to the, the Pheasants Forever Quail Forever page and look for that policy piece, then then uh, uh, both mine and uh, Bethany Erb and Andrew Schmidt's contact information are on there. And yeah, feel free to reach cool. out. Adam, uh, put a bow on it for me. Yeah, I think um, Jim kind of just set it up nicely too. The thing that I, I think I'm spending most of my time thinking about out here is like, how can we get every farm to produce a few pheasants or how can we get every farm to produce a few bob whites or whatever species of conservation concern you're interested in? And uh, the reason I frame it in that way is that I think the alternative um, is to focus like, for example, on public areas or on places that hunters buy and manage really intensively where we have like a few farms, farm loosely defined or a few parcels producing a ton of birds and a ton of farms not producing any birds at all because of that issue of homogeneity and intensification that I mentioned earlier. And I guess what I'm dreaming of working on through my career is figuring out how we can get all farms to contribute in small ways. Um, and you posed this question to me before this wrap, uh, or, or as we were preparing, you said, what's your one big idea that hasn't received funding yet? And I can't say it hasn't received funding because like I said, Mark's doing this precision ag and we, you know, we did it with that successful farming article that you mentioned and, and others. But um, there was this 
this, I, I, I just think about this idea of getting every farm to find opportunity areas for wildlife habitat and doing it. And, and I want to make the point that this isn't a new idea. I quoted Aldo Leopold in my dissertation uh, from 1936. He said, quote, few people as yet understand that wildlife is best produced as a thin crop to get either quantity or variety. You have to spread it over large areas. And he knew that he knew the solution to private lands conservation in 1936 was to get everybody to do a little mm. bit. And for whatever reason, I feel like we maybe lost track of that a little bit. We tried, we, we spent a lot of time trying to like recreate wildlife areas on private land. And I just don't think that's what we need. We need to figure out how to make like what Jim's talking about CRP work for the masses and grow, like I said, 10% of the pheasants, but do it on 23 million acres. Mm. We, we thought maybe it was going to be cover crops. It wasn't cover crops, but um, I think it might be small practices like farmable wetlands, um, mm. uh, prairie strips, field buffers, uh, eroded hillsides. Um, there's a lot of people working on that out here. And I think that's where that's where we need to go. And there's some really good research questions there too, because trade-offs abound once you get small patches and predators searching more efficiently and winter survival is lower, like all sorts of questions abound. So there's research questions and there's policy questions there. And that's just what I'm kind of thinking about spending a career working on out here. You can never go wrong closing a podcast with an Aldo Leopold quote either. And, <laughs> that's and, right. Iowa and, native. Well, we always like to remind and, people. And, and absolutely. <laughs> uh, even though his shack is in Wisconsin, right? <laughs> I know. Wisconsin been, people hate it when we remind them that it's... And, <laughs> and New Mexico has a has yes. a state that's in right. background too. That's right. He he was yep. a German short hair guy as well, so I'll bring that. That's up. also true, yeah. <laughs> but I, so you are you can never go wrong quoting Aldo, and I do often think, um, for he he's sort of gotten a there, there's a rejuvenation of how much the broader public appreciates his thinking, and I think that's that's really good. That that's really good, but I don't think it's quite reached what it should be. I think we should be thinking about Aldo on the stature of Einstein. You know, really, like, when you think about wildlife management and habitat management, he figured out so much so long ago, right? And we're still learning from his assessment of that situation half a century ago. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's funny. You can find a Leopold quote to support like a mm. lot of different things. But th that one I shared is a little more obscure and, and I think it makes a good case for private lands. The other thing is like his most famous. So the opposite end of that spectrum is the land ethic. Um, and, and, you know, I really keep that rooted in the back of my mind all the time. Is like a lot of times we talk about economics. We talk about making things profitable. We talk about, um, you know, what, what good is going to accrue to landowners and, um, I try to remember that a lot of times we just need to talk about what's right. And that is stewarding these land and th these resources for future generations, for your neighbors, for your grandkids, for, you know, whomever. I mean, it's there, there is right and wrong when it comes to land stewardship. And that's the lesson of the land ethic that I think about a lot as well. And like you said, you elevate him to like the level of Einstein. It's like, that really was, that's the core insight mm. is like, he was saying that there are ethical and moral stakes in land stewardship that go beyond what he called the 
the privileges of land ownership into the responsibilities of land ownership. And I sort of soft pedal that in my, in my (laughs) education, but I talk Mm. about it. This, there are responsibilities of land stewardship as it relates to water, soil, biodiversity, conservation, addressing climate change and other challenges like that, um, that he also, we, we still haven't fully embraced, uh, and we need to embrace more fully. Well said. We, uh, we could all still learn a lot from Aldo. Um, for Jim Inglis, thank you uh, for sharing so much time. Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. I'll point people to Habitat University. Um, websites, habitatuniversity.com. Is that right? Uh, I think it, that a search for it's on Libsyn. Oh, that's right. You're right. The, Habitat yeah. University dot Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Um, if you are infatuated with learning more and more from Adam about Habitat Conservation, um, he's got a wonderful podcast series going in his own right. And I'd encourage you to give that a listen as well. Uh, fellas, thank you for sharing what has become almost two hours. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and listeners, thanks for 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 uh, devoting so much time. It's been a really fascinating conversation for me. And I will close uh, as Bob Sapier, thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, everybody.